0: Hi, welcome back. We're looking at the essay on the subject who is finally in question. It begins on page 189 of Ecree. And I think the hint as to what we're getting at comes on page 192, the third full paragraph beginning, how then can we? Let's start there. How then can we account for the obvious misunderstandings that abound in the conceptualizations in vogue in established circles? Okay, don't get caught up in the fancy words. We're looking for a misunderstanding here that Lacan is supposedly going to address. Regardless of how their creations are slapped together from the supposed feelings of unity, there's a clue, unity, where at the height of the treatment the bliss that we are led to believe inaugurates libidinal development is found anew to the much ballyhooed miracles obtained by reaching genital maturity with its sublime ability to join in all regressions this blissful joining resulting in unity in all of this and note the past five lines have all been in between m dashes here. So there's a big hyphen and there's a long expression, and then we come to the end of the hyphenated clause here after regressions. So if we were to read the sentence without the big inserted m dash phrase, it would read, regardless of how their creations are slapped together, we can recognize in them the mirage which is not even debated. The completeness of the subject. So what I've done here is I've looked at this paragraph and I've taken the second sentence and removed the middle clause which is quite wordy and detailed, profound but also detailed, and just read the sentence without it. Regardless of how their creations are slapped together, folks who occupy these established circles, we can recognize in them the mirage which is not even debated. The completeness of the subject people even formally take such completeness as a goal which should in theory be reachable even if in practice infirmity attributable to the technique or to the aftermath of the patient's history requires that it may remain that it remain an overly distant ideal the key phrase here is the completeness of the subject this is the great mirage which is to say fantasy, which is to say, misunderstanding, that Lacan believes much psychoanalytic theory and technique is relying upon, this hope that the end of analysis, the goal of analysis, is the completeness of the subject, completeness as a goal here. He does not believe that that is the case. Good analysis does not end in the completing of a subject. Quite the contrary nor was the subject complete before whatever ailment or maladaptive trait sent them in for analysis. It's not that we were all complete as babies and then society shattered us, and then somehow we're going back to therapy in order to become whole again. That is not the case. Completeness fantasies are just those fantasies. Turning the page. From 192 to 194. 194 to 195 are the key pages in this essay. Let's walk through some of the passages here and see what we can make of them. I'm looking about a quarter of the way down the page on 194, the paragraph that begins, it is difficult not to see. Now, time a paragraph begins by saying it is difficult not to see, yet nevertheless we have a whole paragraph on the topic, it means that it's probably, in truth, pretty difficult to see whatever is at hand. If that weren't the case, we wouldn't need a whole paragraph explaining it to us. In Lacan, this always applies. When he says, it is difficult not to see, get ready for the big reveal. It is difficult not to see, that even before the advent of psychoanalysis, A dimension that might be called that of the symptom was introduced. Now this is going to be an important term for what we get into here, this idea of a symptom. Now at this point in Lacan's career, the idea of the symptom is profoundly connected to his understanding of language, which we're going to talk a little bit about here in a moment. So hold that in mind. He thinks of symptoms here as signifiers. Signifiers. Later on, He will come along and think of symptoms more in terms of another concept, which he calls the synthome. Um, We won't get in much into that here today, um, but it is um, quite the opposite of a symptom. It is not something that is interpretable. It's something that defies analysis, that defies interpretation. The synthome is something else entirely. Um, It is not a linguistic um, or tropological aspect. It is um, a topological aspect of the subject, but we're not there yet. We're just talking about symptoms, um, and let's see what we can get going here. This notion of the symptom was introduced, and it was articulated on the basis of the fact that it represents the return of truth as such into the gap of a certain knowledge. Now, I would wager here that the certain knowledge Lacan is talking about here is unconscious knowledge, a certain type of knowledge. And what you'll see in Lacan often is a separation between knowledge and truth. The field of knowledge is the field of consciousness, it's the field of the ego, it's the field of awareness, -awareness, self-awareness, self-consciousness. Truth, though, for Lacan, is usually hooked into the unconscious. It usually finds expression more in the accidental utterance than the one that you consciously, artfully, carefully wrought for an event. So I would suggest that the return of truth that the symptom allows for is a return of unconscious truth, which is a certain type of knowledge if you think about it. You know that there is a lot that you don't know, right? Well, there are a lot of things that you know but of which you are unaware next paragraph i'm not referring to the classical problem of error so this is not truth versus error fact versus mistake that's not what we're talking about or truth versus falsehood let's see where he goes with this i'm not referring to the classical problem of error but rather to a concrete manifestation that must be appreciated clinically in which we find not a failure of representation but a truth of another reference than the one, whether representation or not, whose fine order it manages to disturb. So the truth of the unconscious is not one that depends on the logic of representation. And this is interesting. What he's suggesting here is that the symptom doesn't work through a logic of representation, the symptom doesn't represent something else. That's not really what he's about yet, and he wants to suggest that in the history of Western thought, representation has been the dominant logic and the idea that every expression should connect to a truth or an error in a representative way. So the truth of the unconscious disrupts the logic of representation. This is the fine order that it manages to disrupt, dot, 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 in this paragraph. And I would just suggest that the fine order of representation that it manages to disrupt has a certain discourse and discipline attached to it, and that is going to be the discipline of philosophy. The discipline of philosophy is oftentimes figured as the discipline in which truth finds expression, in which representations of truth can be arrived at through philosophical discourse. And that, of course, is premised on the belief that especially in the modern era, that self-consciousness is the height of philosophical discourse, a kind of awareness. In the old days, it would be kind of like know thyself. By the time, though, we get to the modern era, it's something different. It's about accessing consciousness, self-consciousness, awareness as much as possible. So the completeness that would be at stake here would be a complete self-awareness a completely cognizant being. And of course, in psychoanalysis, we don't accept that as a possibility. The great discovery of Freud is that we are not complete beings, never completely cognizant, because there's always some part of us that's unconscious. But let's read on here. We could get lost in the next paragraph on 194. There's great stuff out there on Marx as the discoverer of the symptom and the like, but this is not lecture on Marxism. So let's back off that and move down to the next paragraph. We're on an agenda here. The one that begins, I am aware. I am aware of the precision with which it is fitting to accompany this theme of truth and its detour in knowledge. Now this is important. Bruce has kept the French here for detour because if you look to the right at the bottom of 195, you'll see it again here worded as a dodge. Keep your eye on this French term, but what Lacan here is saying is that in the discourse of philosophy, truth has been detoured into knowledge. It's the belief that knowledge of oneself, consciousness, consciousness, self-awareness, he says this is a detour for truth. This is not the true path of truth. This is a detour, a distraction. It's been detoured in knowledge. An arena where truth really has no place. And that's the idea here, is that truth is elsewhere. The field of knowledge has no space in it for truth. And so when truth finds itself there, it is on a detour, which is nevertheless the crux, it seems to me, of philosophy as such. So in this paragraph here, you can see very clearly what Lacan's referring to here. This is psychoanalysis versus philosophy. Psychoanalysis is on the side of truth. Philosophy is on the side of knowledge. Psychoanalysis is on the side of unconscious truth. Philosophy is on the side of egotistical knowledge, especially self-consciousness. There's the unconscious truth that psychoanalysis accesses and brings to our attention. And then there is the obsession with complete and full consciousness, characterized by the ego, that we see driving the discourse of philosophy. Okay, we've been talking a little bit about the symptom. We're on page 194 here. Let's get into it. At the bottom of 194, we have a paragraph that begins, unlike a sign. Unlike a sign or smoke which is never found in the absence of fire, a fire that smokes indicates with the possible call to put it out, a symptom can only be interpreted in the signifying order. So the suggestion here so far is that symptoms at the top of 194, represent a return of truth as such into the gap of a certain knowledge. Now, psychoanalytic truth is unconscious truth versus philosophical truth, which is the truth supposedly associated with consciousness. Lacan says all that amounts to is a fetishization of knowledge. So you have knowledge and philosophy on one side, truth and psychoanalysis on the other. Consciousness, unconsciousness. These are where the priorities lie. These are the moving pistons that Lacan is trying to work out here. And the symptom does something. Unlike the sign, which operates according to a logic of representation, the way that smoke represents fire, if you will, the symptom works somewhat differently. Its logic is not one of representation where you see smoke and you know it represents fire. A symptom can only be interpreted in a signifying order. A signifier has meaning only through its relation to another signifier. So it's not a sign that has a referent in the world that we're looking at here. It's a symptom that works as a signifier connected to other signifiers. Now, the example of this, the best example that we have here, is language itself. Language is a differential system of signifiers. And what I mean by that is that any one word in a given language only has meaning in relation to other words. So if you look up the word cat, for instance, and let's say you don't know English, you're just learning English, you look up the word cat, you might see something like a fuzzy four-legged small mammal well each of those words fuzzy four legged and so on um, are words that you can look up in the dictionary words that have their own meaning and if you don't know English you might not know what any of those words mean you might recognize the word for but what is fuzzy so you look up fuzzy and fuzzy has its own definition which is comprised of other words that in turn you need to look up in order to understand the meaning of fuzzy. And each of those words in turn has its own definition. So you see what I'm saying here? It's this whole web of signifiers. And it's almost like you have to understand many, many parts of this differential web in order to make sense of the meaning of the word cat. Now, I say differential here, and it's an important word because cat does not equal fuzzy. Fuzzy is part of the definition of cat but cat doesn't equal fuzzy, so you can't look up fuzzy and expect to see a picture of a cat. That's why it's a differential system. There are different words that you need to know in order to make sense of other words, in this case, cat and fuzzy. So we've been talking about symptom as signifier at the bottom of page 194. And I've suggested that this doesn't work through representation. Signifiers work by being connected to other different signifiers. A whole web of signifiers is what gives meaning to one of them, regardless of their referential or representative work. They're connected through a series of articulations with other different signifiers. And the example that we were working with here was that of a dictionary. A dictionary contains many words. You can look up all kinds of things in a dictionary, but each definition will be comprised of different words that in turn would need to be looked up if you were new to that language. So let's get on with the reading here. A signifier has meaning only through its relation to another signifier. That's the example of looking up a word in the dictionary. Cat only has meaning in relation to another signifier like fuzzy. Moving on, the truth, there's that word again, the truth of symptoms resides in this articulation. You see, the truth of smoke, you might say, resides in fire, in what it represents. Lacan is not saying that. He might be saying the truth of smoke resides in its relationship to something like fire. Here's what he's saying, the truth of symptoms resides in this articulation not in what they point to, but in what they're connected to. Symptoms remain somewhat vague when they're understood as representing some eruption of truth. And They do. They remain somewhat vague when you understand a symptom as a representation of some underlying clinical structure. In fact, they are truth. That's the key move that he's making here. The symptom doesn't represent an underlying truth. The symptom is the truth, and that's the mystery to get unraveled here. It is made of the same wood from which truth is made. If we posit materialistically that truth is what is instated on the basis of the signifying chain, which you can think of as language use, Let's see what we can make of this. First things first, we might be able to add some things to these phrases. That last one in particular. If we posit materialistically that truth is what is instated by way of symptom or through symptoms on the basis of a signifying chain. So truth and symptoms are occurring in the same articulative order. And this Lacan says is key not what's beyond the order, but what we see as the order itself. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, this order is of course known as the symbolic, and you can look it up and learn a lot. It signifies society, language, law, order, normativity, all the rules and expectations and ethics that come with a given community. But primarily for our purposes, language. The symbolic is this signifying order that he talks about at the bottom of 194. Now let's scroll down a little bit and get into what's at stake here in this understanding of symptoms. If we understand symptoms and truth as functions of language as a signifying order, Remember the example of the dictionary. We can draw some implications from this. So what Lacan is going to do here is he's going to assume that you have a pretty good understanding of symptoms as signifiers and signifiers as entities whose truth reside in their articulation with other signifiers. The example here again is language. Symptoms are like words in a language and they derive their meaning by being connected to other symptoms. Now, let's take an example of this, a classic example. Let's talk about how repression works. So, there's a traumatic event, a car crash, worst event of your life. Now, it's tough for you to think of this event on a daily basis, much less at the time of its occurrence. In fact, at the time of the occurrence, you may have found that you repressed much of this event. Now, what that means is not that you took the entire event and condensed it into a single memory and then shoved that into the depths of your unconscious. That's not the case. What gets repressed during and after a traumatic event is a signifier of that event, some part of that event that is brought forth, and repressed. Now, I wouldn't say that this signifier represents the event. It's not a part that represents the whole, the way that the trope of synecdoche would work. It's more like a metonym. It's a condensation, a part that is functioning and just as powerful as the whole. So the logic here would not be synecdochic, but metonymic. Synecdoche, metonymy, you can look them up. Now, what happens as time goes on? You had the car crash. You repressed some part of that. Now, let's say the part that you repressed was the feeling of your bloody clothing stuck to your skin. You were wearing a velvet shirt soaked in blood stuck to your skin and that's the creepy crawly part of that experience that you grabbed hold of and shoved under repressing it now as time goes on you get over as much as possible this horrible car accident but the repressed signifier from this accident the feeling of wet velvet bloodied and stuck to your skin stays with you and it stays with you in the unconscious as you move through life and then suddenly you're at goodwill looking around for a new shirt and you're going through the racks And all of a sudden, you touch a shirt that is velvet. And you immediately recoil in horror and disgust. You can't imagine this shirt ever being near you, and you're like, oh my God, and you leave the store. Or something worse. But you recoil in disgust. You've had a reaction to one of these pieces of clothing. Now, what's happening in this moment is that this repressed signifier has gone along until it finds a connection to another signifier in your environment, here the shirt on the rack at goodwill. And once those two signifiers connect, the one of which you're conscious, the shirt at goodwill, and the one of which you are unconscious, the repressed feeling of velvet stuck to your skin from that car accident, now suddenly, The signifier that is the shirt at Goodwill connects retroactively to the primal scene or the traumatic event of the car crash. And that's how that connection works. What you get established as a result of this is an entire web of signifiers. You have the traumatic event. You have the repressed signifier here, R1. R1 goes on in time until it connects to R2, which is the shirt at goodwill, at which point R2 establishes A retroactive relationship to the traumatic event. Now what you have here is a series of signifiers brought together in a signifying order. They are articulate in a signifying order. And the truth of all of this is not so much the traumatic event, but the order itself in which the trauma occurs in the future as a signifier. The shirt at Goodwill does not represent the trauma. It signifies it. It connects to it. It drags it forward. It makes it present. That's why you recoil in disgust. The shirt itself becomes as powerful as the traumatic event, enough to make you recoil in disgust and even storm out of the storm. What we have here is an understanding of symptoms that are based on their connection to other symptoms in a signifying order. (coughs) The word I've been using is signifier, but for Lacan, at this point in his career, signifier and symptom operate according to the same logics, not logics of representation, but logics of signifierness, of articulation. Logics that very close to relate to language.